and we're back. Just like that. Just like that, we've returned. Hello and welcome to series two of All the Way Through, the podcast going through the Louis Theroux back catalogue to work out whether we still love him as much as we thought we did. For those who don't know, my name is Matthew Dunn-Miles and I'm joined by my partner in crime, Alex Watson. Hello, Alex. Hello. Hello. They let us come back for another season. They being me and you. (laughs) No, we got commissioned for another season by ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. It was a tough, tough break there for a minute. I thought they were going to say no. Yeah, the, the people voted and we are back. And what a way to be back in the world of sales and commercials and advertisement. We are venturing into the world of the home shopping network, which sounds now like a relic of the past, but was very much a new phenomenon when Louis was kind of exploring it. How much time have you spent watching home shopping channels in your life? So... One of my parents, I won't won't name them, did have a stage where they were quite into the home shopping channels and did buy a lot from them. So I feel like I'm strangely familiar with them. It is a weird, weird culture, though, and doesn't seem like the perfect recipe for a Louis Theroux documentary. But actually, once you're in it, you can kind of see why they were drawn to this as a subject. I had a phase where I used to watch the home shopping channel quite a lot. I never bought anything, but I used to find it weirdly relaxing to have people just give me the hard sell on ugly necklaces and weird things for your house oh my god that's a weird way to be because then if you were in like a shop or something you might just instantly fall asleep yeah if they were demonstrating to me how this certain kind of nail varnish works and i just pass out on the floor with the boots makeup ladies (laughs) the thing that struck me about this episode which aired in may 1999 is that Louis suddenly looks older, or seems older anyway. He does. Does he have different glasses? Yeah, they're a little bit more tragic than the last pair. (laughs) They're probably a bit more fashionable of that time, so they are now completely unfashionable at this time, which is the cruel hand of fate, really. That's just time slipping away from you. Everything comes back around, I suppose. We'll be wearing those glasses next year. Yeah, so you're right. It is May 1999 when this aired. The UK number one at this time, was Backstreet Boys, I Want It That Way. In the US, where he was obviously filming this documentary, it was Ricky Martin's Livin' Da Vida Loca. Oh, that was an era. The number one in the box office was I Still Know What You Did Last Summer. So that's the kind of era we're talking about in terms of popular culture. Also on this day, 12th of May 1999, the Scottish Parliament meets in Edinburgh for its first session. Hooray. That's one for all our Scottish listeners. Still a very ugly building. Sorry. I love that building. I love it, but it's ugly. Louis Theroux is nowhere near Holyrood. Where is he, Alex? Louis Theroux is in Tampa, Florida at the Home Shopping Network HQ. And apparently this is the centre of the home shopping world is Tampa, Florida. The channel is devoted to selling 24-7. So non-stop, they're just selling stuff to you on the telly. I mean, I guess the equivalent in, in the UK is what, QVC? Is that what it's called? Having dug around, Home Shopping Network was kind of the budget version of QVC, but deliberately. QVC sold themselves as upmarket products, whereas Home Shopping Network was for everyone. It was for the people. Okay, well, that makes sense because inside Home Shopping Network HQ seems to just be full of um, small inflatable chairs. With NFL teams on. Yeah, branded up with sports teams. 
And some dolls. Someone is shifting some dolls around. High quality products. Anything you can think of really is on sale at Home Shopping Network. And the first person that Louis meets there is a bit of a home shopping legend, I think. A guy called Anthony Sullivan or nicknamed Sully. So you can just picture him like the big fluffy character from Monsters, Inc. if you want, if you haven't seen the episode. He does not look like Sully from Monsters, Inc. He looks like a very average man. I've wrote could be Yadar next to him, but that's probably unfair. Oh, I think he's okay. No, he's a, he's an okay man, but he just he's a very average looking person. There's some sort of Ted Bundy vibe about him. Ted Bundy would probably be offended by being called average. But anyway, away, away from Ted Bundy, Anthony Silly Sullivan is showing Louis around the kind of studio. And you're right, this guy... So at the time, he was working for the Home Shopping Network, but he ends up being a really big dog in the industry. He continues to work selling products, but sets up his own company. He's in a docudrama on Discovery Channel in the 2000s called Pitch Men, which I think is a play on Mad Men, but I'm not sure. And on his Wikipedia page, it says that he is responsible for selling a number of products, including the Aero Knife, which is a non-stick strong kitchen knife, the Bar Noodle, some flexible bag sealers, and the grater plater, a ceramic plate with grater teeth, which is just genius. What? How does that even work? Well, look, don't ask me, ask Sully, because he's the man who knows. Can you give me the cell? (laughs) No. Well, this is the thing I kind of realised with this. I could not give you the cell. One of my favourite parts is when Louis kind of does what a lot of people do to him, and he says to Sully, you sound British. Yeah. About 30 minutes into their conversation, which seems ridiculous, like he's only just clocked it. Anthony is from Devon, he says. But he's not selling the greater player today. What Anthony is preparing for is the smart chopper. So the smart chopper (laughs) is the maddest thing you've ever seen in your life. It just seems to be this sort of tall collection of plastic chambers that lock together and they seem to do everything that you could ever want anything to do but it's a manual food processor which seems like i wouldn't want that i'd want it to do it itself look when sully's finished you'll want five of them and you'll want them now that's the whole point he is a very good salesman i'll give him that so they go into the green room at Home Shopping HQ, which is where it all happens, is what Sally says. And it is actually full of people. Everyone from the makeup girls to all the guys that are selling are in there, including someone who is selling magnets to make you well. That you sleep on. And they make you better. Incredible. Anthony, when he's going into the room, refers to it as the Alpha Moon Base. He means Moon Base Alpha. I'm just, I just wanted to have that on record. He got that wrong. Leave him alone. as soon as they see like a tv camera crew those guys are all instantly on they're selling yeah they're selling straight away it's this really weird vibe which you don't get in other louis documentaries so far i don't think other people have been as aware of the camera as the people involved in this industry are. They're a very strange collection of guys as well. It's all men. When I think of home shopping salespeople, I think of very like glamorous men and women. And some of these are, are, they're quite oddballs. The guys like long hair and ponytails. This is what makes me think that this era was the kind of wild west of this industry, because you're right. I, I think today, or even at the height of when home shopping became massive, which was probably a little bit later than this, it was very clean cut kind of salespeople. But there feels like there was a gap here where the inventors themselves had their chance to kind of get on telly. 
if you could make the product, you did get the chance to kind of sell it. There's a lot of conversations about creative control that come up later on in this documentary. So it does feel like if you had a good idea, you could get on the air to talk about it. You could get your 15 minutes of fame in front of millions of people, which is very American dream sort of vibes. They are not the kind of Don Drapers of this world. No, absolutely not. I mean, in fact, I think Sully is probably the most Don Draper out of everyone. He's getting ready to go on to sell his product, the Smart Chopper, which isn't actually his product. He didn't design it. He's selling it for someone else. So he gets Louis to help him take his kit and his sort of demonstration bench down to the studio. On their way, they go through the call center. When you phone up the Home Shopping Network, that's where you'd be put through to actually buy the very useful products that you're buying. And it's absolutely massive. He says there's 4,000 people that work there and the phones and they answer the phone 24 hours a day every day except christmas i was slightly baffled by louis reaction to a call center <laughs> so they kind of don't show the call center at first they just pan in on louis face as he's walking into this room and he lets out an audible wow and has the face of a child at the willy wonka chocolate factory <laughs> and they pan out and it's a room full of computer screens and people on phones which i just found really really odd he seems totally amazed hey check this out this is unbelievable you haven't seen this before no what are we looking at this is actually what they call a call center and this has been remodeled it's huge it's like he's more excited than the cathedral of porn yeah he definitely is i don't think i've seen louis this excited by anything so far (laughs) As they're on their way, Louis and Sully are discussing Sully's career and he says that at one point he was, or he tried to be a host of a shopping channel for a year and he said he quit after that because he couldn't take the pressure of just having to think on his feet all the time and sell and have someone talking in your ear. When you think about it, it would be a lot of pressure. And I think Louis kind of realises this in this scene. It does seem incredibly tense. There is so much riding on the fact that you have to communicate yourself well. And the financial element of that is so clear because the sales happen literally while you're on air and those figures are instantly relayed to you. Anthony is someone who comes across as they have to psych themselves up for these staged sales pitches. And then there is an instant drop off in their mood. I think it's, it's really, really interesting to watch. So he starts gearing himself up while they're on the set. He's sort of prepping his bench and setting the smart chopper up and taking it apart because obviously he's going to have to do that on TV. He says he's getting himself focused and he starts sort of reeling off all the the things that the smart chopper can do. And Louis just finds this really funny. But it's obvious that Sully's just gone to some other plane where he's just thinking about, like you say, this thing that he has to do and he has to perform. Yeah, he starts speaking in this kind of technical jargon, which is almost like religious tongues, waffling on about all the features and all the blades. And Louis is kind of playing the role of his patsy or his stooge. But yeah, he gets into this really weird kind of manic state where he is not really talking to Louis. He's just dealing with his own psyching himself up. It's really odd to see. Mm -hmm. He's giving himself quite a hard time already before he's even gone on air. I think Louis asks how many units he needs to sell, how many of these products he needs to sell for it to be a success. And Sully says if he sells fewer than a thousand units, he'll quit. 2,000 would be okay. And he's only going to be on air for what, like, I think, is it six, eight minutes, something like that? It's eight minutes, he says at the end. It was an eight-minute section. Maybe someone who needs that sort of pressure on themselves to perform. A dangerous way to kind of motivate yourself, but probably very effective. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's been doing this for a while. He's, he's one of the sort of leading people in the industry, so it must be working for him. Then we switch to go on air with Anthony. It's his big moment. He's flipping a knife 
like a total psycho and then doing his last minute prep which includes here's the expert tips cutting off a piece of cabbage before you uh get ready to put it in the chopper and then slicing a block of cheese in half but diagonally which does he's right it does look better he's right god damn that man he knows his industry food chopper by the way cost $15 or did in 1999 I'm not sure if it's still on the market I found it available on eBay for $12 the original model I think there's been updates since but you can still pick up the original smart chopper for £12 what a bargain really I mean it's the fastest cheese grater you'll ever use according to Sully it's also a juicer and it's got a whipping paddle for whipping cream and making ice cream. Sully just seems to then shout a number of things that, that this device could chop. Or just cuisine. So he says stir fry, peppers, onions, coleslaw, salsa. And he says salsa about a thousand times. And one point says horses for horseradish. Which is obviously predicting the horse meat scandal before any of us knew about it. He also says mother-in-law. <laughs> That is a man from Devon who's learned how to speak the lingo of, of American shoppers, I think. It's like he's having some kind of out-of-body experience. It's manic. It's really intense. I actually wrote that. He's manic. It's just relentless. Louis just kind of stands there in awe. And we're about kind of 10 minutes into the documentary at this point. I feel like Louis asked very little questions at all. He's just been kind of swooped up and brought along on this ride through the home shopping network, essentially. There's no time for questions. You can't even get a word in edgeways. It's just like salsa. <laughs> Corsa. <laughs> Devon. The salsa looks great, though, by the way. He whips it up in like two seconds. And that cheese, my God, I've never seen such a half a cheese look so beautiful. I actually haven't seen cheese that orange since the 90s. Immediately after this eight minutes, Louis and Sully go back to the sales centre to watch the sales as they come in live on a computer. Actually, I think they have a computer just off the studio floor so they can stand two feet away from where they were selling and see how many of these products they've sold and louis had a little bit of a so basically he's already said that his plan is that he's eventually going to go on air himself and sell on the shopping channel and he suddenly realized watching sully do that 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 might be harder than he thought He's really nervous, it's palpable. What I found interesting was they cut from Sully, who, when the cameras switch off, kind of instantly comes out of this manic state and seems quite depleted. And he says all that for eight minutes. You'd be exhausted. Yeah, exactly. The idea of presenting one of these shows and being at that level all the time seems completely impossible. He sold 1,600 of the Smart Chopper while he was on air. So he doesn't have to quit. Doesn't have to quit. He's managed to survive another day. Can we do the maths on that? How how many of those did he set like per minute? I'm really bad at stuff like this. If it's eight, is it not 200 a minute? Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? That's okay. You know, maybe if he'd quartered that cheese, he would have sold a bit more. But <laughs> Some quotes from Louis when he's doing the sort of debrief with Sully. He says, it's frightening how he gets into his sales character and then says it's a serious skill to sell on TV, which is quite offensive, really, to say to someone, oh, actually, your job is quite serious and skilled. I thought you were just an idiot selling cheese graters. This feels like a religious experience for Louis. He's kind of taken in and shocked and in awe all at the same time. He's amazed by this as a skill. So the next character that we meet in this episode is just can you describe him you introduce him oh man dr win paris 
Erwin Paris is actually his full name. He is a serial inventor, a pensioner, bodybuilder, entrepreneur. This guy is intense. There is a lot going on straight away. He lives in an LA suburb in a retirement community called Leisure World. And when Louis knocks on his door and is invited into his apartment, Dr. Wynn is wearing an American flag tracksuit like he's an athlete in the American Olympic team. And he has an interesting hairdo for that era as well i think yeah it's quite flat straight fringe it's almost like a proto beatles cut yeah or like madchester maybe yeah but also completely white because he is at this point 70 i think he is in his 70s and he's not looking too bad for 70 i think his exercise regime is probably working for him i mean he's in good enough health to do the dr win shake when he first meets louis which seems to be mainly just bumping into someone and doing some serious grunting whilst clasping their hand and it feels like Louis is at ease with Dr. Wynn almost immediately. They have this very strange connection. Again, it's like in past episodes, sometimes Louis seems to latch on to a sort of father figure. And this seems to be that. Dr. Wynn's flat is really something. It's incredible. So it, there is stuff everywhere. That's the kind of first thing you notice. And Louis is chatting to him and he is running off to get things to show him. And Louis is kind of laughing and saying, where are you going? And then he'll come back with a, a diagram which says Dr. Wynn's way of life. And then it's a circle with the words spirit, body, mind, attitude. I did a little drawing of it so that I would remember it. Oh, it was very beautiful. And so Louis is kind of listening to him going on and also touching him a lot. There is a this kind of very physical connection between the two. They seem to like to caress each other. <laughs> which you know whatever you do on your documentaries is up to you louis but it is interesting i guess one of the biggest things that i noticed and louis eventually notices is that the walls are covered in writing and he asks what what's going on with all this what's this writing and dr Wen says it's sort of logical if you have a good thought why just lose it but because it's a retirement community he doesn't actually own the flat by the way if the person in charge of this place saw this they throw me out immediately he best hope this documentary didn't air in the usa it's a mixture of his inventions and also just motivational quotes. It's kind of like a very primitive version of LinkedIn. It's like cave painting LinkedIn. It's the weirdest thing. It's not just the walls either. He opens up a book, like the, the phone book or something, and he's just written notes all over that as well. Not to go back to serial killers, but it, you know, it's quite reminiscent of that. One of the quotes I noted down was, world's number one winnerizer. He's not wrong. He is the world's number one winnerizer because no one else is using that term. He wants to be the richest man in the world is his, his goal, essentially, who currently at that stage is Bill Gates. They talk about Bill Gates as, as his kind of main competitor. That's something that Wynn has written on the wall is past Bill Gates. And he says that at this time, only 15% of the world have computers. But how many people have a body? Six million. Pretty much everyone. That's incredible logic. You can't mess with that. It is great logic. <laughs> it, is, it is really good. I feel like it's hard not to be taken in by Wynn and his energy. It's funny because he's really silly, but equally he seems like he knows what he's doing. Yeah, there's a supreme level of confidence there, which is really interesting. I guess the way that he's going to become the richest man in the world is through his products that are on infomercials and home shopping networks, which is why we're here. So do you want to talk about Dr. Wynn's famous products? Gladly. So there is the Wynn stick. Is that what it's called? The Wynn gym. The Wynn gym, not the Wynn stick. <laughs> but, but it is a stick, isn't it? It's wishbone shaped. 
And it kind of looks like a pair of gardening shears without the shears on the end. It reminds me a bit of a boppet. Yeah, it is very boppety. But like somewhere between a boppet and a bicycle pump. So that's one of his inventions, which is apparently his biggest seller. But he's also got the Bye Bye Belly. And so we are introduced this product through a shot of Louis Theroux's hairy navel. He kind of has abs, does Louis? Yes, he does. He's not in bad shape. He's not. He seems like he has a little bit of muscle going on. Look, if Louis's your thing, then just fast forward to this scene and, and get it over and done with because it, he does show off his abs and lies on the bye-bye belly, which seems to be a tilted platform where you then reach down and touch your toes. It's just a little deck chair, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little deck chair. That you do sit-ups in. But it's called the Bye Bye Belly. That's a great name. It's a great name. I mean, if, if people will buy that, then why not sell it? That's what I say. Louis asks Dr. Wynn how much he's made out of all of these products. And Wynn says he's worth 20 to $30 million net globally. But then he says that one person cost him millions of dollars. So I think what we can take from this is that actually Dr. Wynn's kind of broke. Well, that's interesting because looking into a bit more of the Leisure World setup, it was actually quite a prestigious sort of estate. It was the first of its kind, like a retirement facility of that nature in the US. And today it's still open. It has over 9,000 residents. It's a kind of gated community. They have guards and stuff. So he is renting, but even though he is kind of completely trashed the inside, he's still in quite a prestigious area. So he obviously has some money. Digging around, I was really intrigued by the fact that he said this one person cost him so much. And there is an article from the LA Times back in the late 80s, which says, it was on a Thursday in late January that a business dispute between Wynn Paris and Bill Hubner, co-owners of several Jacqueline health clubs in the Los Angeles area, turned ugly enough to make the evening news. Apparently, Dr. Wynn went to two of Hubner's business associates and physically attacked them leaving one hospitalized with a broken nose and he was arrested for assault and then he told the LA Times he was temporarily insane at the time I write of God and love he said in one interview but if someone is driving you bankrupt you've got to go a little crazy it is really interesting that he had this huge dispute with his old business partner which explains maybe why he is slightly still holding some bitter resentment there but he's still going he has like you say the bye-bye belly the wind gym, which I think is, is the best seller. And then he also has the prototype of a new product called Beautiful Buns. Yeah. Is it fair to say this is just a Zimmer frame? A Zimmer frame that doesn't move. Or like a TV dinner table. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of a, like a piece of equipment at a playground. Yeah. So the idea is that you lie on top of it and kind of rest your torso over it and then do kind of reverse sit-ups. And what actually happens to Louis when he tries it is that Dr. Wynne just punches him on the bum. So Dr. Wynne demonstrates this first and asks Louis to please hit him on the bum. And Louis does this without question. There is no hesitation there. He just is smacking this old man on the bum and then says, It's like wood! Referring to his solid buttocks. And then they switch places and Dr. Wynne gets to spank him. And Louis says, Again! Come on, do your exercises! Oh! <laughs> oh. This is where in my notes I've just wrote, this is probably fucking weird. <laughs> it's really strange. But I guess he's just getting into it. I think the problem really with the beautiful buns is that it's not very secure. And if you lean too far, you're going to fall on your own head and probably break your neck. But Dr. Wynn says that it's okay because he thinks it'll do well in Asia. <laughs> I don't know what that means. 
I don't know either. And I'd rather not. In order to find out whether he can make the Beautiful Buns machine a success, he then goes on to a pitch meeting with a company called Darren Severus Industrial Design. I can tell the listeners that I did Google this extensively, but could not find Darren Severus Industrial Design anywhere. I don't think it made it through to the internet age. In the car on the way to this meeting, there's a really strange moment where Louis seems to sort of very vaguely hint about Dr. Wynne's sexuality. He says, Do you ever encounter problems within the infomercial world because you're such a flamboyant person? I don't know what flamboyant is meant to mean in this case. Wynne says, Well, I don't feel I'm flamboyant. I feel normal. And Louis says, You are normal. Just a different kind of normal. Which is a, a kind of sweet moment, but I don't know what that, that question is meant to be implying. Yeah, it feels quite coded language in a way and then there's no more said about that really we just move on to the meeting in the design company and the plan here is to make the beautiful buns safer and to get it into manufacturing so i guess dr wen needs someone to help him do that and the two criteria that dr wen says he needs the beautiful buns needs to be safe and sexy he's hit all the right notes there i think that could be the two criteria for anything in life really (laughs) I think that was Sully's thoughts when he was chopping that cheese. Is this safe and sexy? And the answer was, yes, it was. This pitch meeting is unconventional in true Dr. Wynn fashion. The group of guys around the table are all quite normal looking guys. I think they are engineers, quite nerdy nerdy boffin types. And Wynn picks up a marker pen, gets straight to the whiteboard does some very interesting diagrams of what the Beautiful Buns machine looks like and what it could look like, and then talks about women in G-strings being photographed on the devices. Which, when you're trying to figure out how to redesign a product, probably isn't what you need to be thinking about. Probably need to get more into the nitty-gritty of, like, is it plastic? Is it, like, a pleather substitute? (laughs) What are we doing here? Well, Louis then pipes up and says, this is all very vague at the moment. But Dr. Wynn is not deterred by this fact. And he ends his presentation by saying, You're going to win with win. So just join me in saying it very quietly. Win with win. Win. Come on. Win with everybody. One, two, three. They reluctantly whisper. And then he tries to build them up to standing up and cheering win with win with him. Win with win. Okay, a little louder. Win with, with little louder. Win, win with, win. now stand up, stand up. Come on, get up. Get up, you guys. What a bunch of engineers. <laughs> None of them got up. It's the most awkward thing because they eventually do say it, but it's, oh, the worst thing ever. <laughs> and that's where they leave the meeting. And then Louis sort of catches the guys, the designers at the end to ask how they thought it went and how they were going to proceed. And again, the word flamboyant comes up. The designers say Wynn is flamboyant, but nice. And then the sort of head, I guess the guy who's the manager, says there's a 50-50 chance that they'll sign a contract with Wynn. Louis kind of talks about the fact that he was very vague on detail. And then the conversation of his wealth and fortune comes up because Louis says, we're trying to work out whether this guy is the real deal. And then the business minds kick in and they say, oh, well, obviously we're going to look into his financials and do credit checks to see whether this is something we can work with. This is where Dr. Wynne feels like something from a different era. He feels like a man lost from another time who's ended up in a system where they favour things such as credit checks and financial information and proper plans where 
Dr. Wynn only wants to offer a general vibe, a few whiteboard drawings and a G-string to kind of get this going. Apart from the cringy win with win moment, I would almost have said the meeting seemed to go well because he just seems to be very in control and he talks the talk. But then at the end, you can see the designers are a bit like, what just happened here? We have no idea what we're meant to be doing. Is this guy legit? I feel like he could probably bamboozle you into thinking that he was very straightforward, but actually he's pretty off the wall. To say the least. And speaking of off the wall... (laughs) Here we go. We move from Wind's Pitch to... Maybe one of the most left field people you meet in a Luther documentary, I think. A guy called Cesare, who is a hairdresser and Elvis fan. An important fact. And Cesare is making a tape to send to the Home Shopping Channel because he's come up with this new type of makeup called the Face Shaper. If you're familiar with makeup now, it's basically a sort of contour highlighting kit all in one so you can make your face look thinner or or highlight certain bits and make it look better and he's come up with this formula using minerals that you can whap on and one sort of two-ended stick by the looks of it and you'll look way better so Cesare is going to film the tape to try and get the home shopping network to give him a slot on the channel and he's also filming a commercial for his perfume he shows his perfume which is quite sweet it's a little bottle and it's got a heart shape in the middle and he says it's two different scents so you spray it and it smells like one scent you shake it and then the heart turns red in the middle and then it's a different scent and louis reaction is it's like salad dressing which cesare responds to by saying it's so sensual <laughs> this is a very sensual product Before we go on, I feel like we have to describe Cesare's look. Yeah. He is a man of undeterminable age. He could be anywhere from 40 to 65. He has Noel Fielding hair. About 15 years before Noel Fielding had that hair. He looks like Noel Fielding's dad. And then he has this very well put together skin that is obviously heavily makeup. You would hope he would have a very well shaped face if he's selling the face shaper. I don't know, he doesn't feel like a typical Elvis fan to me. I don't know what I imagine an Elvis fan to look like, but he's very calm and sort of soft-spoken. He seems quite ethereal in a way. He's more like Vegas Elvis than he is young Jailhouse Rock Elvis. If you put him in a jumpsuit, he could get away with being the Hawaii years of Elvis Presley. But I think, unfortunately, in the filming of the advert and of the tape to send, his laid-back attitude doesn't really help him there's a director on set called rudy who keeps sort of cutting cesare off and saying oh this is boring you need to get excited you need to really sell the product it reminds me of the bit in the porn episode of louis theroux where louis keeps running lines and the actor just never gives anything more like i think cesare's just got one gear and that's the gear that he's staying in it's funny because I think cesare really struggles with this advert where as i've written my notes win would live for this opportunity his manic energy would be totally suited to this the one thing dr win would like i think is the moment when at the end of the commercial cesare kisses his model on the cheek and says you've been chesmerized oh god there is a number of women in this section that get to say absolutely nothing one is in the makeup chair at the beginning while cesare shows off his products and then there is a another model at the end who is kissed on the face by cesare in this advert who then chesmerizes her before our very eyes <laughs> she doesn't get to say whether she agrees that she's been chesmerized or not no she does not 
So obviously we want to know more about Cesare and Louis does too because the next step is meeting Cesare at his hair salon in Beverly Hills. So I guess the implication is that he owns a hair salon, which is quite good. In Beverly Hills, he's doing pretty well for himself and he obviously wants to move into a slightly different industry. So Louis goes to ask Cesare more about himself and more about the product, the face shaper, and Cesare kind of gives Louis the proper sell on it. And I feel like this section is so repetitive that it's very reminiscent of home shopping itself. They always, I mean, the times that I've watched it, they always repeat constantly what the product is in case you've just tuned in and you've missed out on it. And here they just kind of keep going on and on about these minerals that highlight all your best features and make you look better. Alex, these are not only minerals, these are micronized minerals, okay? These are the real deal. This is proper serious stuff. It's science. You're right, he does repeat himself over and over again. And Louis kind of falls into this role, which he does throughout, of being the willing audience or the patsy. And I don't know whether he does this on purpose to get these guys to open up to him, but he's very quickly wowing or interested, ask more questions about the product itself to kind of get these guys to do their full sales pitch to him. Mm -hmm. And in this, Louis very quickly talked into a full makeover. Not just the face shaper, Cesare's going to do his hair as well and cut his hair, which Louis is a little bit unsure of at first, but Cesare doesn't really give him a choice. He's just like, of course I'm going to cut your hair. It'll look longer after, is what he tells him. I mean, spoiler alert, his hair looks magnificent after this cut. A lot of body, a lot of volume in there. And I guess maybe this is that thing of Louis gets people to be comfortable in their own environment and then they talk about stuff. Louis asks Cesare, do you watch Home Shopping Channel yourself? And Cesare says that he doesn't. And this is where we go back to the Elvis fan moment. He quotes Elvis. Apparently, Elvis Presley said he didn't listen to other music because it would take the edge off him and possibly distract him from his own work. And that is how Cesare feels about home shopping. He doesn't watch it because it might take the edge off him. I love that as a mantra. I don't know whether the Elvis thing was actually true, but it is a famous philosophy of Elvis. You could argue that he just doesn't want to watch crap home shopping for stuff that he doesn't want to buy. No, exactly. Cesare drops his guard a little bit and he's talking about the fact that actually he wasn't born Cesare. His name was originally Salvatore. Asked when he got his name, he says he picked it up from a TV show called Combat, which I later searched and found that was about American soldiers fighting the Germans in France in World War II. He saw a character in there called Cesare and instantly took it as I want to be called that now. And I was reminded of the line from Butch in Pulp Fiction where he said, I'm American, honey. Our names don't mean shit. Yeah, his real name was, as you said, Salvatore. And I think he said the reason that he got sick of it is because he worked in a hair salon on Saks Fifth Avenue and um, people would say it's Salvatore from Saks. And he said that he hated that. He didn't want to be that person anymore. So he decided to become Cesare, which is fair enough. If you don't want to be associated with something anymore, you want to sort of be reborn, do something else, then... Why not? I I do feel like it's a weird place to choose your name, though. Yeah, it is odd. Cesare does have that sort of glamorous, almost like reality TV thing about him. You could imagine him on something like the Kardashians. And Louis says to Cesare, would you want a TV show of your own off the back of these infomercials that you're doing? And he says, yes, absolutely. He would love to be on TV and have a proper TV show. So that's clearly the plan, even though he might not have that charisma necessarily. Well, that's the thing. But he also then they're talking about the idea that Cesare could let his product be sold by someone else on the network. But he's worried about creative control, which is a theme that comes up again and again. And with this infomercial culture, they do have the chance to sell 
their product the way they want to do it and kind of put it together as they see fit which is really interesting because obviously most people consider things around commerciality and advertising to be restrictive in terms of your creative control but both Dr. Wynn and Cesare touch on this fact that they feel that they have more creativity available to them when they're allowed to sell their products. I think my gut reaction is that things that are sold on home shopping channels are mass produced and you know it'll be a company that's made this but you forget that there is possibly just one person behind this thing. Slankets, for example, like blankets with sleeves that were huge a few years ago. That's probably just someone that's knitted that and knitted, I don't know, someone that's sewn one of those for themselves and then sold the idea and now it's everywhere. You would think with guys like this, they would definitely flock to platforms like YouTube and Instagram if they were around today, if they were starting out. I think they would see that same sort of path to being totally in control of what they wanted to say and how they want to present it through those sorts of mediums instead of TV networks. So Louis getting his face shaping done while they're chatting. He has a few really good lines here. He says, I love being fussed over. It's my favourite thing. I feel like a beautiful woman. <laughs> so then... He appears at the end of his transformation looking like a Louis Theroux Kendall. Also a little bit like a middle-aged mum. His skin is bronzed and his hair has a lot of body. It's quite big. It's almost like a mini Cesare. Yeah. He seems to like it or he's at least polite enough to say that he likes it. He seems very impressed by his own hair and then as he leaves he has this very strange nerdy interaction with a woman where he asks how do I look and she says you look fantastic. It looks fantastic. He's really fishing for compliments. Yeah, it's very odd. As he drives off, he wonders about people like Cesare and says, are they selling the product? He was really selling himself. And that's the thing. Half the time when you buy something, especially when it's makeup or fitness equipment, you're buying it because you've got an idea in your head that it's going to make your life better. And whoever's selling it will presumably be wearing it or they'll have used the equipment so yeah it makes sense that Cesare who made the makeup will say look I'm wearing it it looks great I'm putting it on someone it looks great and you'll go okay I'm gonna buy that because that'll make me look great and the same with Dr. Wynn it's like he's been using this equipment and not falling on his head so far and he looks great so you are buying what they're selling but they're using themselves and their own bodies to sell it to you. I mean, this is what influencer culture, Instagram influencers and social media influencers of all kinds are now. They sell products based on the fact that you want to be like them or you desire their lifestyle or you feel some sort of connection to them. It's never just been about the product. It's always been about the person selling it. I think that's what this shows. Before we move on, would you like to know how things have turned out for Cesare in the meantime? I really would. Cesare had a big year around 2004. He wrote a book called The Poet and the King colon Alvis Lincoln and Lennon this is a fiction book which is about a time traveling couple who meet all these famous American figures oh my god <laughs> yeah in 2112 the future of the United States of America is people and the free world will depend on a clandestine journey back in time to alter the fate of a president a poet and a king so not only did he do that he also wrote and produced a song did he? Cesare had a song called Beauty Rocks and that song is now on Spotify and we should definitely, definitely play a clip for people right here. Definitely. Lights of the city, the King Hill Court. 
The song is incredible. It's very Elvis influenced. I mean, at least he stayed true to his roots in that he wrote a book about Elvis and he's done a song that sounds like Elvis. Did we find out if anything happened with the face shaper? No, but I could see that on QVC, they were essentially selling a very similar product back in the day called the Lifton Face Shape Contouring Wand. I'm so out of touch with makeup, I don't know how common this sort of thing is. But it does look exactly like the thing he was showing to Louis. I think it was ahead of its time. I think contouring has only become a big thing since the Kardashians. I don't know why I keep talking about the Kardashians all the time now. I'm not getting money for that. I wish I was. But yeah, so maybe since the late thousands. So I think he was ahead of the game. Maybe the people weren't ready for it yet. People are never ready for Cesare. He's always got something up his sleeve. A wand, a perfume, a song, a book about time travelling. He's got big sleeves. So we hear from the inventors and we hear from the on-air talent when it comes to the Home Shopping Network. But the thing I thought that was really missing was the consumers, the people who are ringing the call centres 364 days a year, and particularly people who become addicted to these shopping networks. So to find out a bit more about that, I spoke to Dr. Catherine Janssen-Boyd, who is a consumer psychologist at Anglia Ruskin University and has wrote extensively on shopping addiction in all its forms. I am Dr. Catherine Janssen-Boyd. I'm a consumer psychologist and I am based at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge in the UK. I do a lot of different types of research that effectively all focus on trying to further the understanding of consumers, the way they think, the way they perceive different things, whether that be a service, a product, or just an overall environmental perception. So what first drew you to consumer psychology? Why was that such an interesting area for you? Well, commercial background. Started off as a photographer a very long time ago, a fashion photographer nonetheless, and thought that was awfully boring after a while. That wasn't really for me. So I moved on and ended up working in a PR company, which took me into advertising. And I wasn't terribly happy, I must admit. And then one morning, I was reading an article in a newspaper talking about consumer psychology. And it said they were giving classes at the university that happened to be a five-minute walk from the house where I lived. And the rest is history, as they say. And now I'm never changing my job. You wrote an article for a publication called The Conversation entitled Shopping Addiction is a Real Disorder. How do you define shopping addiction and how common is this well because it's not officially diagnosable by statistical manuals that looks into mental health disorders it's very hard to say for certain but if you look at data collected globally so maybe in the states here germany sweden australia and so forth there seemed to be a prevalence of somewhere between 5% to 13% of the population. So because of this, it's probably likely that somewhere in the region of 8% of most populations have people who have either suffered or currently suffer from this particular disorder. For you and, and in your research, what do you consider to be shopping addiction? So this is someone who can't control their urges to shop, who often have very little control over what they're buying. They rack up a lot of debts. 
um, they would prefer to engage in shopping. This could be online or it could be real life. That doesn't actually matter. And they rather do that than perhaps seeing their best friend or hanging out with family or go outside. You know, if they're really stuck to the computer and they get a chance to buy things, then they're very happy doing that. So there is an element of social exclusion or they get excluded eventually because they keep withdrawing themselves and then people eventually kind of go, well, you know, we've sort of forgotten about them. It doesn't have to be a consistent pattern of shopping. It's very similar, I guess, to something like alcoholism in that they can occasionally binge and do it for maybe 24 hours and then spend all the money they have or maybe they'll do it on a daily basis. Maybe they shop infrequently, but a lot. So there isn't a set pattern, but the key is that they overspending money they don't have. And when they do it, they get some sort of need for more continuously. Are there common causes or factors which lead people to shopping addiction? I would say it can affect anybody, but there seems to be more prevalence from people who come from slightly deprived backgrounds. This also comes from advertising and, and so forth. They kind of see that everybody else has a better car, they have a bigger house, they have a better handbag, and that inspires them at a young age to basically want to have these things and then it keeps building on it as we live in quite a materialistic society anyway they keep underpinning it in various ways and eventually they just become very very keen on engaging in too much shopping to kind of overcompensate for things they might not have had earlier in life there are also people who perhaps have suffered a great loss of some sort. It might be loss of a loved one and they just want to engage in something frivolous to make them feel better because that, again, is a common misconception that going shopping makes you feel better. And then perhaps it does temporarily, but of course not long term. And to get that good feeling back, they keep repeatedly doing it and they're kind of trying to hide from something that perhaps they should be dealing with. This documentary is obviously dealing specifically with TV shopping channels, which kind of boomed in the 1990s. How much of an impact do you think 24-hour shopping had on people in terms of falling into shopping addiction? It's actually very difficult to say for certain, but the fact that society has moved and it kind of started with all these shopping channels that you could do it 24-7, it was the onset of the idea that actually we should have accessibility to different types of consumption all day long, effectively, and night. So that would have set a kind of precedence for this. And then, of course, we've seen you know, shops are open 24-7 hours in some cases, and of course you can shop online. So it would have, I guess, given people the idea that it's fine to shop 24-7. So if you were one of these people who potentially wanted to soothe your pain somehow, and you thought, well, that's an easy way to do it. For the moment, the shops are closed. I'll switch on the TV. I can get this phone number, I can order something and I know something's coming, I don't have to wait until tomorrow. For those who were already vulnerable and kind of falling into that category, it would possibly have tipped them over the edge. Do you think that the format of these channels, were they built to be addictive? 
I don't think they were addictive. And what's quite interesting is that there's a lot of studies looking at that sort of um, 1990s kind of structure of shopping. And actually sales figures is not suggesting that the main success would have been directly from the sales from that kind of advertising. In fact, most of the sales would have come from retail stores. So it would have been still relatively niche. So I wouldn't have said that it created addiction, but for those who already had that kind of frame of mind, it would definitely have satisfied their urges and possibly tipped them over the edge. Do TV shopping channels still hold a power over people or has this been completely subsided by the internet? We still get those kind of channels. I mean, there's several shopping channels that I see daily. I don't watch them on that, but I do see them when I'm clicking through the channels. So they do exist. And what they're particularly good for is for people who can't sleep at night. And that's also often where they get their custom. Because as we know, our brains aren't quite as alert during nighttime. We tend to get a bit slow in our thinking patterns. And they talk about regulatory depletion, which is basically when we can't kind of regulate the way we're thinking things properly. So by kind of having that as an ongoing thing at night, you don't scrutinize what it is that you see on television, what you're actually being advertised. So rather than thinking, oh, maybe I don't need that, you say, oh, yeah, maybe I need that. I'll have a go at that. And they buy it. And unfortunately, a lot of the time people receive their goods and they're very disappointed with it. Do you think that these avenues of kind of 24-hour shopping need more scrutiny or more regulation? If you ask me, we should not regulate shopping in any shape or form. It should be something that people can choose to do or not. But I think what we do need to perhaps have more influence over is whether or not people should be able to maximize their credit cards. Maybe we should have some sort of control over to what extent people can purchase high amounts of goods from specific channels because part of the problem is that people really really want to buy things no one says to them hang on should you really be spending a thousand pounds on this and because they're almost encouraged to buy it when they are vulnerable their psychological state of mind is not the only thing that's going to suffer it's also going to be their finances which means they might lose their home because they're missing repayments on their mortgage due to spending and because it's such serious consequences there should be something that helps people who are potentially spending a high amount of money on things that aren't deemed essential so we go back to see dr win firstly Continuity is totally messed up by Louis' makeover because he arrives back with Dr. Wynn looking as scraggly as he did before. His hair is long and lank, lacking the volume. As soon as Louis walks into the room, Dr. Wynn tries to lift him up on his shoulder. It's very endearing. I think partly, and this is my own personal opinion, it slightly reminds me of my own relationship with my grandfather, which was so weird. I being the slightly lanky person and him being a short, muscular, tanned man, which my granddad was for many years. Did he used to try and pick you up on his shoulders? He used to make me lie on his back and then he would do press up. <laughs> 
So this all feels very familiar. It's very strange. Well, Dr. Wynn says Louis too lanky, so that's why he can't lift him up. Not because he's like a 70-year-old man. <laughs> After the sort of joviality of this, when Louis asks about the meeting that they went to the day before, Wynn says he wasn't happy with it. I guess he twigged that those guys didn't really take him seriously. So he says that instead he might go to university students to get the beautiful buns made, which is something that he's done before. So I guess he, again, would have more control over that. Yeah, and again, Dr. Wynn's confidence here seems bulletproof. I think most people would come out of that sort of meeting and have their ego dented. At this age, he'll have come across a lot of negative people or who he perceives to be negative. So just water off his back, I guess. As always with Dr. Wynn, there's something happening today. They're going to be on TV. You don't get told too much about it in advance. It's just that we're going to be on TV. They get to the TV studio and there's quite a lot of people there. It's quite a busy atmosphere and kids have been brought in to be the studio audience and there's lots of people and lots of crew. And then Louis gets to speak to one of the producers and ask how many people will be watching this. And she says, you had 10. That's good. Ten what? Ten people. No, ten isn't that good, is it? So for all this effort, there's possibly going to be ten people watching Dr. Wynn on the TV. This whole scene is so bizarre, and the more you analyse it, the more levels of weird are going on here. Dr. Wynn is going to appear on a show called Talk of the Town, which is hosted by a guy called Rick Putt. They said that 10 people were likely to be watching. They said that they had around 8,000 subscribers or something along those lines, which maybe means potentially they could reach that many customers if everyone in that area tuned in. But there was so much crew. There was so many people involved. There was a whole studio audience. They ordered pizzas. Where do they get all the money for this? It's incredible. And they also have, well, it's never really clear if the TV station provided this or if Dr. Wynn brought this, but there's a, a small band who sing a song about Dr. Wynn. Alex will now perform that song for us. <laughs> I've written down some of the lyrics. A man named Wynn, won't you let his message in? A man named Wynn, won't you let his message in? I think was the song. Is that your audition to be in the band? Oh, they're, they're probably all dead by now. <laughs> a man named So they perform this on the TV and then nothing's really said about who they are or why they do that. And then Wynn goes on and talks about his product. And I, I quite enjoy this section where it just cuts between Wynn and the sort of director producer backstage who's just got his head in his hands for most of it. At one point, I think what happens is Wynn shows his product, the Wynn Gym, and demonstrates how it works, which he's not meant to do. And the producer-director man is very upset about that. Look, he was sat there with the wind gym next to him. Did no one think to ask him, Win, are you going to show your product on air? I think they probably said, you know, you can't do anything with that, right? And he was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he did it anyway. He also addresses the children at one point. So he's already previously said to Louis that one of the benefits of his exercise regime that he sells to people is that it gets your bowels moving, I guess. It gets your intestines sort of cleared out. And he tells these small children that he wants them to be emancipated from being constipated. I don't think I would know what that meant at about six or however old they are. Emancipation, I can only think in terms of slavery. So I feel like if they had 10 viewers, at least seven of them would have complained about <laughs> that comparison and even louis looks a little bit disturbed by what he is watching 
Dr. Wynn then says, Super Kids of the World Unite, which feels borderline Jonestown sort of material. They wrap up in the studio and Louis chats to Wynn afterwards to see how it went. He recites a poem. Dream your dreams, assume they're true, then transform yourself into Super Lou. That's beautiful. I like to think that he wrote it specially and he doesn't just normally say Super You. He definitely just says Super You normally. Well, we say goodbye to Dr. Wynn for a little while and go back to Home Shopping HQ because it's Louis' turn to go on air and sell stuff. Today's the day. And he is absolutely shitting himself. (laughs) He is so nervous. And he should be nervous because the vice president of programming, Catherine Amos, wants to meet him. And the way that this is set up is she's like an angry head teacher. She asks him a series of questions to work out how suitable he is to be thrown onto this channel. The first one is, have you been on camera before? Which I feel like Louis does well to not just say, well, duh. I don't know if she's doing a bit here or has zero sense of humour. Louis politely says, yes, I have. I've done work on camera. So instantly you think, yeah, Louis's qualified to at least present a segment on this. Then he's asked, is it live? And which Louis answers, no, it's always pre-recorded and edited. He's never done live telly before. Have you ever sold anything before? Not really, he says. So clearly Louis's never had a job in retail. He's missed out. And then asked, has he ever worked with an earpiece before? Louis again says, no. So he's kind of failed three out of four there. She's willing to give him a chance still, but she says, what about clothes? What are you thinking of wearing? And he says, well, this is an option. He's wearing a black shirt. And she instantly says, no, black sucks the colour out of the shot, so you, you can't wear black. And he has another shirt option, which he brings round, and it's an orange shirt with her floral sewn embroidery on it. He says, I'm very fond of this orange shirt of mine. Her response is, You can be fond of it at home. (laughs) Which is just damning. But accurate because it is a really ugly shirt. It's rank. It's a rank (laughs) shirt. She does present this quite stern character, but then he sort of admits that he's a little bit scared about going live on the TV and Catherine says, it's okay, fear is good. So... You know, if you're not scared, then you're complacent about it. And we kind of saw that with Sully as well. I mean, he's done it however many times and you could still tell that he was a bit nervous before he went on. She seems sure that he's going to do okay. So he's passed the audition and then he goes in to meet his co-host for the section, a woman by the name of Sue Ferreira, who clearly is an experienced hand and has this very kind of cool, friendly persona, but also kind of impersonal. She kind of seems always switched on, always like she's on air. And again, it's like you say, because she's used to the camera, it's probably because the camera's there, partly, for the Louis Through documentary. So she's being a character. Yeah. So the options for what Louis can sell <laughs> seem really weird to me. The options are roses. Louis says, do they have thorns? Good question. <laughs> so they never actually specify. Are they, is it really just roses, like fresh flowers? Surely it's, I don't know, ornamental roses or something. I don't know. The idea of just having lots of fresh flowers to sell seems so bizarre and not feasible. The next option is a smoke odour absorber. Louis sort of tries a bit of a sales pitch at this point <laughs> where he says, you can smoke as much as you want. Kill yourself. <laughs> smoke more the final option is a paper shredder which louis seems into he says a domestic paper shredder is interesting 
He gets slightly sidetracked by the idea of shredding important documents, kind of like a spy novel. He's got hours to be on air, but still finds time to disappear to Sully's house. Which, by the way, Sully's house, that sad Union Jack just hanging in the hallway. No. It looks like a student flat. Imagine you're like, oh, I'm on a date with the country's premier salesman on Home Shopping Channel. And then he takes you home to that. What would be worse is it if he had a very bare minimal house or he had a house full of things that he sold. <laughs> and he just bought them himself to get the, the sales up. <laughs> so he doesn't have to quit. <laughs> He's just sleeping in a smart chopper. So they go back to his house with hours to go before Louis meant to be on air. And they're watching previous people pitching the paper shredder. And Louis says, Paper shredder. No, it's not a paper. It's the Achiever three-page cross-cut paper shredder. And they kind of discuss strategy and go back and forth until eventually Sully's got Louis at the stage where he can kind of sell the paper shredder, which is quite sweet, really. I quite like their sort of little friendship. It's funny, though, because I think with Sully and with Sue Ferreira and other people, they seem to domineer the conversation. They ask more questions. They seem to be talking more than Louis does. I think he's fine to to let them kind of talk because it, it shows aspects of their personality and who they are. But there are times where it feels like Louis the one being interviewed. Yeah, it's almost as though Sully is the main character in this whole thing. Yeah. Louis goes back to the studio. I think Sully goes with him and he gets the shredder out and sort of practices and he's he's doing a really bad job of shredding at first. It's going in diagonally. He can't find the sensor. He's meant to be selling this to thousands of people and he can't use it. He has noticed it's got a teak finish though, which Sully is very impressed with. And then he gets quite clingy. Sully's like, okay... I'm going to leave you so you can continue to practice shredding paper. And Louis gets upset and he's like, oh, don't leave me. Why are you going? (laughs) The subtitles as Sully leaves, it just says shredding continues. (laughs) 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 So we can only assume that for a couple of hours, Louis is just shredding everything he can find in the studio. Shredding blocks of cheese. Just before he's about to go on, Sue, who is going to be the anchor on the show, comes to sort of make sure Louis okay, see how he's getting on. She thinks that they can sell 1,200 shredders in Louis' segment. That's her prediction, which is a lot. I mean, that's nearly as many smart choppers as Sully sold. It's a big ask. It's a big ask. But Louis is kitted out for the occasion. He's put on one of the iconic home shopping denim shirts. It's Sully's old shirt. He said, yeah, I lent that to him. It's my old one, which I thought was really cute. But presumably because Catherine had said, burn all of that man's clothes. Someone find him something to wear. Then suddenly we're on air. We're live with Louis. There was a vacuum cleaner before him and now it's his section. And Sue says, we're live with Louis Theroux. (laughs) Which is, I mean, there's a lot of bad pronunciations of his name over the years, but that's got to be the worst one. So he's standing there like a child getting their photo taken on the first day of school. His arms are down by his side and he's grinning at the camera. And then he starts to give the sales pitch. You can tell how nervous he is because he's so loud. But the thing that people can't hear is the sound of shredding. He just won't shred. He just doesn't do it. Like you said, he's talking again about shredding documents and spy movies and things like that. And he's not showing the product. No. So Sue's there showing how slow it would be to do it with a pair of scissors compared to shredding. But Sue's nearly finished and Louis's still not shredded any documents because he's too busy talking. 
And there is a guy in Louis's ear who is meant to be directing him and giving him instructions through his earpiece who must say start shredding at least five times before Louis actually starts shredding. And Sully's hovering around that guy as well. And he is also shouting at the guy to shout at Louis, tell him to start shredding, tell him to shred more. So it, it's, um, it's going okay, but he's not been shredding. And then he starts shredding. And then Sully says, get him to shred five pages at a time which is a big ask for this rookie. I think what happens is Sue has the same man in her ear. So I think Louis either can't hear him or is ignoring him, but Sue can hear him. So she's saying to him, oh, shred five, shred five. And Louis says, can we just do three fives a lot? (laughs) He's wilting under this pressure. But during this bit, the most beautiful thing happens. So as Louis puts in his five pieces of paper, he says, look at that, all the way through. And we are taking that as an official endorsement of this podcast. I'm sure the shredder was probably full of sweat by the end of this because he does make it through, but it's quite tense. Like you said, he he comes off and instantly he's so downbeat. He's really hard on himself, like probably the most you've ever seen Louis through. And he's quite a self-deprecating man at the best of times, but he's really worried that he's done a bad job. He's so emotionally drained and he's kind of looking for support from Sue and then Sully asking them, was that okay? Did I bomb? But you're right, that switch goes off from that manic state to a complete drain. It's really interesting to see. Bear in mind that Sue had said she thought they could shift 1,200 shredders. At this point, although people are still phoning, he's only sold 115. I think Sully's much more conservative estimate before they started was 200. But in the end, they only hit 123 overall in his manic state sully says he mentioned crockery three times and louis has no memory of this which kind of says a lot about how the pressure does get to you sully says you didn't bomb that he was quite proud quite proud like he's specifying not totally proud but quite proud and he said at one point it's almost a one thousand dollar minute he is really trying to make him feel better Louis has his final moments with Sully where he tries to point out this whole sales thing. It's trivial, really. It doesn't matter. But in that moment, it did. And Sully instantly kicks back against this. He says, from that one sale, you can go on to sell 15 million products across the globe. It's almost like Sully has to constantly convince himself that this isn't a trivial pursuit. This is actually a really important thing that he's doing. He probably is insecure about it in some ways because he will get flack from people saying, oh, that's dumb. You sell plastic crap on TV. And you'll get that thing where people say, what do you do? And he'll say, I work in TV. And they'll be like, oh, that's really exciting. And then he'll explain what he does and they'll think, oh, that's not so exciting. So yeah, he probably is a little bit defensive about it. But like you say, it's almost like he's trying to convince himself. No, this is a proper job. People need smart choppers. They do. They make them happy. So then Louis kind of ponders and says he was expecting hucksterism when he first was introduced to this world, which makes me think this show was originally planned to be looking at whether this was a con, this industry. And so maybe Louis did expect to be met by consumerism that he really found soulless, but kind of gets swept up by it and finds people he likes. I think in my head, I always associate TV shopping with gambling in a way or something like that, where you develop unhealthy habits and it's designed to suck you in. And, you know, a lot of them have payment plans and stuff like that, where you're going to end up in loads of debt. So I think I have always thought of it as a bad thing. But yeah, I don't think there was very much of that in this at all. I don't think you saw it from the consumer's angle. It was all just about the people that were behind it and selling it. Well, that's the thing. We see 
two sides, but there is a third side to this. We see the guy who invents the gadgets that people want. We see the salespeople who sell it, but we don't see the end result, which is the consumer, the people who buy this. People do get addicted to these shopping channels and find security and a sense of pleasure in these instant hits of the thing they see on telly is then being sent to them. And that can get dangerous. Louis goes back to Dr. Wynne's place <laughs> and someone has left Dr. Wynne a really odd voicemail message, which we listen to, which kind of, I guess, proves that Dr. Wynne hangs out with people that are even crazier than he is. Yeah, I think he's a hypnotherapist or something. I couldn't quite grasp it. It was just loud and quite intense. It was very intense. They have a chat about Dr. Wynne and if he could have his success, I guess, and have his money and happiness, but he didn't have to do infomercials. And Dr. Wynne says, no, he only wants to do infomercials. That's how he speaks to people and that's who he is. And I think you can tell that just from seeing him in action. He's he's made for TV, really. We wave goodbye to Dr. Wynne final time. And since then, Dr. Wynne's sightings have been very sporadic. He had a YouTube channel back in the kind of early 2010s, which seems to be made up completely of videos of him talking about how Obama is like the Pied Piper and Hitler. There is also UFO sightings on there and testimonies on his business from people in Uganda. So Wynne goes down some very strange paths and maybe never quite gets the huge global success that means he can retire in his own way. Is he still alive? Well, this is something I tried to find out. There's a few Facebook posts saying that there were people who knew him who said he has died in the last couple of years. He was in his 90s, but that is not a confirmed report at all. There is no obituary on the line that I could find anyway. I'd be impressed if he was still going at that age. Definitely. It sounds like he maybe got off track a little bit. If there ever was a real track for a man like Wynn anyway. <laughs> True. And then we end the episode on a full rendition of the Dr. Wynn song. With intermittent clips of Wynn doing things like lifting weights and doing sit-ups. It's a very touching tribute to the man. Let's get into it. Alex, was this good through or bad through? As much as I enjoyed the episode and there were great characters, I don't think it was good Louis. How about you? I think it was good Louis because... I don't think this is the most dark or interesting subject that he's ever gone into. And I think there was times when this felt quite normal now because 24-hour shopping culture is so easily accessible today. But I think his interactions with Wynne and his willingness to go on air, even though he was clearly very nervous, won me over with this documentary. I think it was good, Louis. I think probably, like you said, because Louis feels like he's taken a bit of a back seat in this episode. It's just a different dynamic so I'm going to stick with a not for me. Just say bad Louis. You can say bad Louis. Bad Louis. But it's like he's a dog. <laughs> Big question though. If you had to have any of the items sold in this episode, what would you choose? I think I would do the bye bye belly. You can bake that yourself. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I guess the smart chopper because I waste a lot of time grating cheese. So <laughs> I could do it faster. I, I wouldn't trust myself with a smart chopper. I'd lose a finger. What would you choose? Maybe the wind gym. Mainly because you could use that to probably scratch your back or if you needed to reach something up high and you couldn't quite get there to push it down. There's a lot of things that you could use that stick for.
thank you as always for listening welcome back for another series if you want to give us any feedback any tips or any abuse then you can find us on instagram and twitter at all through pod souls on fire